welcome to the first episode of October. And October, I'm a little, I may be a little biased. October is my favorite month. It's my birthday month. Um, but as we enter October, we're going to be talking not only about breast cancer awareness, but because um, that's, you know, the big topic in October, but also looking at like prevention and what have, what can we do after we have breast cancer, not just the awareness part. But before we get started, Dr. Jess, what is in your glass? So this morning I am working on my smoothie still. I'm trying to um, overall kind of just get a little bit little bit in at a time so I don't drink it all at once because I end up getting distracted and then I don't drink it all um, but it's full of all sorts of good stuff um, protein and you know chia seeds and flaxseed and ground flaxseed and um, my uh, cashew milk and um, uh, microgreens with some dark fruits so uh, and today I put some banana in trying to get keep that potassium up so <laughs> Dr. Bobby what's in your glass? Oh I just have a decaf coffee iced decaf coffee um, with a little, I've recently found an almond uh, creamer. Um, I was using a non-dairy creamer, but I learned that non-dairy doesn't mean there's not dairy in it. Um, it just means it's not from cow's milk. There's derivatives and stuff in it. So I found a true dairy creamer. That's really good. So, or non-dairy creamer. Yeah. Yeah. An almond one. So. Perfect. That is what I am drinking, a little coffee or a little decaf coffee today. So mm -hmm. I am really excited about uh, today because I actually get to interview Dr. Jess. Uh, Dr. Jess works with a lot of breast cancer survivors, a lot of people dealing with uh, issues after different surgeries, things like that. And so I get to interview Dr. Jess today on that uh, topic. So when we get before we get started, Dr. Jess, can you give us an overview of like how is physical therapy used in with breast cancer patients? So essentially like physical therapy is, is the rehab of the body, right? So we think of musculoskeletal system as physical therapy. In addition, physical therapy covers the lymphatic system. And so those two combined is what creates the subspecialty of an oncological therapist that with more specificity inside of breast cancer itself. And so what that means is that when we consider what happens for breast cancer related intervention, We've got surgical operations that typically happen almost always, either a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, meaning that lumpectomy, meaning that the just the tumor and some margins of breast tissue were removed, mastectomy, meaning that the entire breast itself is removed. With both of those, you're going to have potential for scar tissue uh, restriction. Um, there's also just like in general, like the pecs are muscles right in that area. We've got other muscles in the armpit area that can get pretty irritated with that surgical intervention, which can lead to some guarding plus scar tissue. And that creates a forward roll of the shoulder. That then creates impingement, um, tendency for tendonitis, all sorts of things like that, that causes shoulder pain. This happens in anybody, by the way, anytime we get that forward roll of the shoulder, that ball and socket isn't going to glide and like it normally would. And you're more likely to have that pain that's associated bursitis. Any of these are common. 
And so just because you had cancer doesn't mean that you should be living with shoulder pain. So that's the kind of musculoskeletal aspect of what goes on. Then we think about what happens with the lymphatic system. And so anytime somebody has a cancer diagnosis, what happens is that they need to understand how far has this cancer spread. And so if the breast cancer is going to spread, it's going to go to the lymph nodes in the armpit area. We call those the axillary nodes. It's going to go there first. And so what they'll do is they'll remove a couple of the lymph nodes. It's called the sentinel node and one or two other nodes around there. And they're going to test those. They're going to send those off to pathology. And the pathologist is going to say, oh, look, no cancer in these nodes they can pretty much say, okay, we think the cancer has is only in the breast itself. It hasn't left the breast. If that's not the case, and the pathologist says, ooh, I'm definitely seeing evidence of cancer cells in these lymph nodes. Now what they do is they go in and do another surgery. And this is a, called an axillary dissection. And they're going to remove more of the lymph nodes out of that armpit area. And they're going to test those. So again, this is just kind of helping to understand how far has the cancer spread. And that's how they're going to stage the cancer. So a stage one or zero means that that cancer really hasn't left the breast, right? Um, once we start getting into stage two, stage three, stage four, that just means that the cancer is now in multiple areas of the body, stage four, meaning maybe there's bone metastases, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's this information is really important because it drives the treatment intervention for the cancer. So oftentimes people say, well, you know, they didn't have to remove all of these lymph nodes. And, you know, I wouldn't have this swelling in my arm, which is, which can happen. And we'll get into that. I'm like, no, 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 nobody did anything wrong. They had to know if the cancer had spread, because if it hadn't spread, the intervention is different. If it has spread, the intervention is different. So you want to make sure that you really understand where is the cancer, how aggressive is it, how far has it spread, so that the appropriate treatment plan can be initiated right away. So when they take, do that axillary dissection, and if they take more lymph nodes, they're then going to say, okay, no, we're good. It was just in the sentinel node, but it's not in any of the surrounding nodes. Cool. Or they might say, we took more lymph nodes. It is in these lymph nodes. And that doesn't mean that it's not treatable. It just means the treatment's going to be different. And so making sure that that is all understood is important. So now that patient has had two surgical interventions, okay, in this area. And this area has a lot of muscles, you know, you've got the lymphatic system. So all of that leads to the potential of, again, that shoulder dysfunction. But once we start tapping into the stress that happens to the lymphatic system, that's when other things can happen. So those are just other common diagnoses that happen when lymphatic disruption occurs. So does that kind of like help answer like the big, what do we do as physical therapists and why? Yes, I think so. And then I, you know, I kind of two questions, but they're kind of separate and we'll, I'll ask both of them, but first let's start. My brain kind of thinks of like, 
you know, right after either you had this surgery, I guess my first question is, is are you treating patients differently regardless if they've had surgery versus radiation versus chemo? Are there different um, impairments that you find with each treatment, regardless of how long they are from that treatment? Absolutely. So anybody that everybody, pretty much everybody has surgery, right? Like that's like that. It just, that's what happens. You got it. You got to get the tumor out, you know? So that's where I'm definitely big time screening the shoulder and making sure that we have what's called normalized scapulohumeral rhythm. So that shoulder blade is moving. We don't have a shortened pec. You know, we've got good strength in the rotator cuff, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm always going to be screening for shoulder and postural dysfunction. Now, if somebody has had radiation, radiation is a through and through beam. And so the radiation is going to affect the soft tissue, as well as the breast tissue. And so what can happen is you can get what's called radiation fibrosis. And so it's like that skin starts to kind of thicken down and it can get stuck on the ribs. And so now it's like, I'm trying to move, but that skin is kind of getting stuck and irritated and it can cause, you know, pain and all sorts of other stuff. And so we want to make sure that, especially if the patient's going to be prepping for uh, reconstruction, we want to make sure that we get as much mobility in that region as possible, because if they are wanting reconstruction, uh, they're going to typically put in some sort of a um, device that's going to fill, it's called an expander, and they're going to fill that expander, you know, about once a week with some saline and it, it, it fills and it fills and it fills and the skin accommodates around the expander, which is what's going to allow the cavity for where the implant is going to be placed. And so that's one form of reconstruction. There's other forms as well, um, but it's very hard to do reconstruction with radiated skin. And so it's um, something that we work on big time that there are patients that are at higher risk of having an encapsulation, which is where the skin kind of just gets stuck around that implant and it's very painful. Um, and so we try and really be as proactive as possible um, prior to that surgery to make sure that we're like giving them the best chance possible to have a good outcome um, if they choose to go through reconstruction in that manner. So so with that, um, how, and I, I understand it may be different for each patient, but if you're working with a patient that you feel like their skin, you, you know, they're more susceptible to that happening, how mm -hmm. often are you seeing them? Is it like once a week? Is it once a day, like every day for a period of time? Yeah. It honestly is, it's always going to depend on what we're working towards and mm -hmm. how restricted it is. So let's say I get somebody in and they've got, um, we're screening them for shoulder. Maybe we've got the start of some swelling, you know, the start of lymphedema. And they're like, oh, hey, um, my reconstruction is, uh, my, my expander is going to be placed in a month. <laughs> I'm like, oh, uh, okay. All right. We have four weeks to get you ready. <laughs> and so my frequency when I have a timeline like that is going to be higher. The other thing that you've got to note is I might have somebody currently in radiation that I'm treating. So it just kind of depends if they're currently in radiation, um, then, and we're treating the lymphedema, then I'm probably going to try and get them into the lowest frequency that I can, because it's really common during radiation that you just get very, very fatigued and, um, you get skin burning, you know, stuff like that. And so there's not a whole lot that we can do 
current in radiation, like you just got to let that skin heal. So we're typically working on keeping the shoulder moving, making sure we don't have regressions, keeping the shoulder blade moving, keeping the lymphedema under control. And so we kind of go into major management phase during that, where we're just trying to maintain everything that we gained up until radiation. Then we're going to lower our frequency during radiation. Then when we're done with radiation and everything's healed, we're going to up that frequency back up again, and we're going to kind of get that momentum going. So anytime we're working on a plan of care, it just kind of depends on what's going on and what are we preparing for. If I have longer time to prepare, I can have less frequency per, you know, less visits per week. If I only have four weeks, we're going to have to do two to three days a week to really get prepared because we're going to lose. Like anytime we're working conservative management, we're going to make gains and then we're going to lose those gains. And then we're going to make gains and then we're going to lose them. So patients aren't going to maintain 100% of the gains that we make after seven days of being on their own. We're going to see some decline, right? So if we maintain 80% of what we gained, sweet, we're doing well, right? Because then we're just constantly bumping off of that, right? But what we can't have is we can't maintain, you know, or we can't gain this much and then lose it all and then come back. Because now we're like, what are we doing? This is just a yo-yo. So that's where like the frequency just really depends on how much gain do we need and how well is the patient doing in between visits with maintaining whatever gains we've we've um, been able to achieve. So that's kind of, and everyone's different, you know, you add chemotherapy to the mix and then now you've got even more fatigue, nausea, um, GI issues, you know, things like that. And so the biggest thing during chemotherapy is making sure that we're at least maintaining the lowest level that we can, you know, or like the highest level, but it's going to be low. Mm -hmm. Um, cause we don't want to get like super deconditioned. We don't want to get, um, you know, any sort of like a capsular adhesions in the shoulder, things like that. Um, like we've got to maintain basic range of motion. We've got to maintain just the basics of being able to transfer, being able to like do what we call household ambulation. Uh, you know, all of these, like just basics, we've got to at least maintain that much so that we don't have any sort of like really significant functional decline. And that just depends on the person. So so let's talk about uh, the different uh, phases that that patients go through. So let's start talking about acutely. And so typically with an injury, acute's like seven to 10 days, although surgery, I think of it more as like those first uh, three to six weeks almost um, after surgery. Uh, I don't know if that's the same for you, but that's, I do think of that differently versus like a sprained ankle. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So let's talk acutely. What, how, what are you doing with the patient acutely after a surgery? Yeah. So I would say like right away, you just go into like crisis management. So first is like, you just have to say, okay, what are the potential red flags that could happen? So big time is infection. So we're always going to make sure that we're like lots of education on infection prevention. And so a lot of these surgeries are in this region. And so if we have our arm down and we've got, especially where there's drains that are coming out after surgery. So if we're like really trying to protect this area and we're not getting this washed and dried well, um, when it's ready to be washed and dried, I mean, right away, you can't be putting a bunch of water on there, but like making sure that we're actually having really good, what we call skin hygiene is key. That it's just too humid, it's too hot. Like we've got to make sure that that's staying protected. 
The other thing that you want to make sure acutely is that we're just, we're normalizing our range of motion so that we prevent adhesions from happening. And so it's really, really easy after surgery to go into protection mode, right? It's almost like we want to put that sling on and protect this area and not open up and move. And what that's going to do is that's going to create neck pain because I'm going to see this posture right here. I'm in full protection mode. I don't want anything touching me. I've gone through trauma. And so I can't do that because now I just am going to cause all these secondary things. So even when I can't be doing scar tissue work and things like that, we're doing a lot of work to work on necks, to work on that mid-back stability, to get this shoulder moving gently, doing some table slides, doing some scap squeezes. We're going to be doing some just basic stuff to um, help with circulation, okay? Because we know that the lymphatic system was stressed because we at least had a couple of lymph nodes removed if you know we didn't have to do an axillary dissection. So we're gonna be proactive with making sure that we're getting <laughs> circulation throughout the arm. We don't want stasis, um, diaphragmatic breathing. We're gonna be as proactive as possible to prevent onset of lymphedema. We're going to have a, a mixed edema situation in, in the beginning. We're going to have post-surgical edema on top of lymphatic stress. So that's, you're just ripe for lymphedema starting. So we're going to do everything we can to improve lymphatic flow, improve circulation, help you clear out all of those inflammatory cells so that we're taking the stress off of those axillary lymph nodes so that we don't overstress them. Can we prevent it 100% of the time? No, no. But we can do everything possible to make sure that we don't get shoulder dys dysfunction, that we do everything we can to prevent lymphedema. And we're going to do everything we can to prevent any sort of postural dysfunction, secondary onsets of pain, deconditioning, everything else that can happen. Because you've got to think this is like really scary stuff. When people go through scary stuff, the body dysmorphia that can happen. I mean, if you cut off an appendage of the body, <laughs> like there's a lot that happens. And when we don't look into the mirror and feel good about what we see, we're not going to put a lot of effort into like taking care of ourselves sometimes. Right. And so we talk a lot about this and about how, like, what are the next steps? And if we're kind of going down that path of like, it's getting a little bit too negative, we might pull in some mental health counseling to really start with the processing of everything that's happening. So that way we can make sure that we're supporting this person physically and emotionally to get through this diagnosis stronger and healthier and with the healthiest point of view that we can. So I'm never gonna discount what happens when we have this kind of surgery. It's a big deal. I was going to say, I think a lot of times, and I'm going to speak for myself, but I'm sure there's others out there. You talk about body dysmorphia and like losing appendage. And you know, when you first think about losing appendage and appendage is like a part of the body, you think about an arm, a leg, a foot. You don't really ever think about like a breast as like being like, I don't know, like if someone loses an arm, you're like, oh my gosh, how are they going to, but a breast are like, oh, it's just, it's like, it's not going to affect their mobility per se. Like, like they're not going to go from two feet to one foot, you know, like, but it is, it does, it is a part of you. It is a part of what you see in the mirror and how you feel and things like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the phrase, if you look good, you feel good. 
Yeah. Right? So it's that kind of, that's our baseline into us putting energy into ourselves, right? You look good, you feel good. You're more likely to lead that active lifestyle. You're more likely to make that better choice with how you're eating. You're more likely to have improved communication, interpersonal relationships. So all of these aspects of life are, you're just um, going to have a higher threshold and you're going to be able to put more energy into things. And so acutely, we're going to know that that threshold is low, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and even if it's like, like, I'm fine, I don't care. It's okay. I don't want to do reconstruction. That's okay. That's cool. My biggest thing is like, I need you to be able to look at that scar and touch that scar. Those are our number one things. So if you're avoiding looking and touching the scar, we're going to have major body dysmorphia that's going to happen most likely. Okay. So we have to start to normalize. This is the new norm and it's, that can be really, really hard. I mean, I can tell you personally, I had a C-section um, with my second and that was hard. <laughs> like, And you can't see that scar. It's super low, but like just to be able to, it just, it feels invasive. It feels like your body was intruded and you now have this scar line. It can be sensitive to touch, um, all that kind of stuff. And it was harder than I thought it was going to be. Honestly, it was a little surprising. Um, so even though I work with patients on this, it wasn't until I actually experienced what that feels like. I was like, wow, this, I, I mean, I had empathy to know that it would be hard, but like now I'm like, wow, you know, it's, it's, um, it is tough. It's tough to feel like your body was invaded like that. You know, even though for me, it was to like, have like my awesome son come out of me, you know, <laughs> and yeah. it was the only safe way to do it, um, at the time. So, um, but it just, it, it, it just, I think it's stuff we need to talk about. And I think oftentimes people want to downplay that. It's like, Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm fine. But like, what if you're not <laughs> like, that's okay. It's okay to pause and say, okay, how, how am I going to be okay with this? How am I going to be okay with the new norm? There's no going back that it's gone. Right. So yeah, it's yeah. the acceptance that needs to go forward. And so that's where we start acutely at the same time. We're just working on everything we can proactively to just stay ahead of what could come because it's just so common. Like it's so common. We have a stress lymphatic system. We have post-surgical edema. We have a second surgery, even more edema. Mm -hmm. Now we can get axillary cording where like the axillary vessels get all fibrosed and now I can't straighten my elbow and it really hurts to raise my arm and it's super painful, completely treatable in physical therapy. Um, all of a sudden it's like, my forearm's looking bigger than the other side or my ring's not fitting. That's the backup of fluid into the arm. Okay, that could be the start of lymphedema. That's all stuff that's treatable. That's very treatable stuff. Doesn't mean curable, means treatable though, okay? Same thing with shoulder dysfunction. You do not need to have restricted range of motion in your shoulder because you had breast cancer. Nothing happened to your shoulder joint for it to be permanently limited at all. 100% treatable. So all of this is treatable. It's just, if we don't do anything, then it's just common. There are common things that happen. So we can get ahead of that. Mm -hmm. So looking at, so that's acute. So that's kind of the first part. As we go into subacute and chronic, 
obviously we're going to carry over those same things. We're going to continue to work on range of motion. We're going to continue to decrease uh, edema or the lymphedema in there. So we're going to continue those things. But what else? What are the differences? What else are you going to do at that chronic, that subacute and chronic stage that you may not do in acutely? So once we get to subacute at this point, what complicates this with breast cancer is we might actually be entering uh, radiation during this time. Uh, we might be like the thing with like with this kind of population is like oftentimes we have more things coming up. So mm -hmm. it's not like a typical plan of care where um, let's say you have like a, you know, a knee surgery and then, you know, we're done with surgery. Now we're just boop, 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 rehabbing. Really, we're just essentially we're just constantly preparing for the next thing. <laughs> and it's like that for about a year. Okay. So start to finish. Oftentimes this takes about a year between from when you're diagnosed to when you're all the way through and, you know, you're done with intervention and we're, we're on full, you know, full management, maintenance, all of that surgery, surgery, radiation, chemo reconstructions, potentially. Cause there's like nipple, like, um, the tattoos for the nipple, things like that. Cause the nipples removed with a mastectomy. And so all of this stuff is just kind of scattered. Like they do enough, let you recover, do more, let you recover, do more, let you recover, do more. So mm -hmm. we really are kind of once we get to subacute we're almost getting ready for the next thing <laughs> is is the real answer um, and then that will just put you back into that acute or you, you know change the plan it's a very hard year mm -hmm. it's a hard year for people and it's not that they can't do it like you know all of my patients do it like then they get through it and we make it as fun as we can and we prepare for what's going to be hard and we do everything we can to just you know be realistic and set realistic expectations and give ourselves grace when we need grace and say, it's okay that I'm not running. Okay. That's okay. Because I will be running later. <laughs> right now I'm focusing my energy on this in order to be able to get to that. And so it's just kind of reframing the thinking, but in subacute, we can kind of start working on that scar a little bit we can get a little bit more with like what we can do with that shoulder, um, higher level exercises, which is kind of fun. Um, we can work on some more of that, just like dynamic stability. If anybody's gone through chemotherapy, we've got the risk of peripheral neuropathy, which is what um, you get decreased sensation in the fingers and feet. Um, so that is just stuff that can happen. If it is happening during chemo, then only give them a break from chemo that week, let the body recover. Uh, but we know with that is that we're going to have decreased dexterity we're going to have potential for um balance impairments things like that and so we're just constantly trying to stay ahead of that and so always putting stressors on that include dynamic stability so the brain is always having to think where are my feet in space where are my hands in space and so that's how we try and exercise is with that mindset so I'm going to have people like sitting on a yoga ball when they're doing their scap squeezes. I'm going to mm -hmm. have them, you know, just like still mm -hmm. like having to think about where my body is in space to maintain all of that neuromuscular connection, have them standing on like some sort of balance board as we do some like overhead strengthening. Right. So nothing super hard, but enough to like keep the brain connected to everything. So it's a lot of like working things at the same time so that it's efficient, but still like 
we're never like we're not bodybuilding in here I mean I know it doesn't seem like that but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people I don't care about those big like showy muscles I care if you can function normally and safely and we are prepping the body that if you want to then go push and do something else that you can that you have the foundation that you need. Otherwise, if we don't have that foundation and you want to go do some of these other things, that's when you're going to have, something's going to drop, right? You're going to end up with back pain. You're going to end up with shoulder pain. You're going to end up with like a negative experience when that was really preventable. You just didn't have the foundation. So we're just always keeping that foundation as strong as possible. Neuromuscular, shoulder balance, scar, all that. So and I think, so I think anyone watching this or listening, you can tell Ju uh, Dr. Justin and I are both physical therapists. However, this, there's a lot of subspecialties in physical therapy and breast cancer and lymphedema is one of them. And it is not an area that I am educated in. So it is not an area where I would take patients because I would, I feel like I'd be doing a, them a disservice. Um, I would, you know, if it's a shoulder, pure just shoulder, that's one thing. But if there's lymphedema involved and things like that, I think it's important to find a therapist that has that experience, that has that education. Right. So Dr. Jess, if someone is going through this, what is, and maybe they're not local to Jess. If you're local to Jess, you better go to Jess, Dr. Jess. She's awesome. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida, that is. But if you're not local to Jacksonville, Florida, what can someone look for, whether it be initials behind their name or uh, what can they look for? Yeah. So they 100% must have what's called a CLT, Certified Lymphedema Therapist. Like if they don't have that, do not let them touch your arm. Okay. Like it's simple. I have had so many patients over the years that went to a clinic that said, oh yeah, we have somebody that treats lymphedema. And because they don't understand lymphedema, they make it worse. So it's not even like a neutral where you don't make it better. You can actually make it worse. And so that's the problem. If you know a little bit, but not enough, it actually makes you harmful. Um, and that's anywhere in life, by the way, <laughs> like people that it's like, you don't know what you don't know. Um, um, but like for real, if you've had stress to your lymphatic system, you need to work with somebody that has a certified lymphedema therapist, like CLT behind their name. Um, outside of that, I like the company it's called Pori P O R I and that's who I did my oncological training through and they have a specific training for breast cancer specifically. And so I really like that because CLT just means you can treat lymphedema that is not specific to breast cancer. Lymphedema can happen in the legs and the abdomen in the face. You know, there's all different reasons for why lymphedema happens. If you are specific to breast cancer, this, this course is the one I like. I like it a lot. It's well-established. It's got tons of research behind it. Uh, I'm sure there's other ones that I just, I, you know, I'm not as familiar with, um, but having that, that sub-training inside of breast cancer specifically is what's going to prepare the therapist to understand what's happening with like the testing, the axillary dissections, the axillary hoarding, you know, all of the different things that can happen that are specific to breast cancer. So that would be really ideal 
and we'll link this in the description below but you can look up on the PORI site. You can look up therapists that are trained through PORI. And so um, that's like, like they're going to, they're going to just know more. Then I really like, I just think it's important that the therapists understand orthopedics. I just think that's important. Like I've worked with people in the past that would wrap the arm, they would treat the cording, but they were not good with the rest of the orthopedic stuff of like getting that shoulder moving normally and retraining the scapular humeral rhythm and stuff like that. So like just calling and asking like, Hey, what, like, what is the approach of this therapist? Like, are they going to help me with my shoulder and my swelling? Are they going to help me with, you know, like just getting an understanding of like, do they like understand like what I'm going through with reconstruction, you know? And so it's, it's okay to like, ask those questions pretty much. Um, it's your body. You want to make yeah, sure that I was gonna say, really ask, like, don't be scared. Don't feel bad about asking. Um, when I call for, to help other people that are not in my area and I call local places, I don't tell them I'm a therapist, but I ask all the questions and they're kind of like, uh, yeah, we treat that. And I'm like, uh, okay. I want to know, like, you know, I ask more and they're like, well, because a lot of times you're talking to a front desk person right. that has no experience, uh, true physical, they're not a physical therapist. No. Um, so don't be scared to really question and find yourself a really good therapist because it can make a huge difference. It will make a huge difference. Oh yeah. You can check their bio as well. So check on the website, read their bio, see what the bio says. Does it seem like they are the therapist that has the training that I'm looking for? Um, you can call the clinic and ask to talk to the therapist. It just honestly depends on the time, you know? So like, please don't like give your entire life history to that therapist over the phone and try and keep them on the phone for an hour. Like more than likely that is going to, now they're going to be writing their notes at home, you know, after dinner time, because they should have really been getting their work done during that time. So I'm just, I, it happens. Okay? You're talking from experience. I'm talking from experience. Like just be respectful of that person's time. Okay. Because a therapist is a human being, a human being that also has other roles in life. A human being might need to pick up kids. They might need to like help with homework. They might need to do all this other stuff. In addition to treating patients and writing their notes and staying on top of emails and communicating, you know, with like co-treatments. So nobody has an hour of just blank time during the day, um, in a, in a busy functioning clinic. So if there's something specifically that you want to ask the therapist, write those questions down and then ask those questions to give the history and all of that information that's during your appointment. So all of that is, you can do that during the appointment. Um, but like just, um, and if they don't have time to call you back, don't get your feelings hurt. Okay. Not everybody has time during the day. Like my day is literally like every minute of my day is accounted for on Monday morning until Friday evening. Um, there it's, it's blocked. It's time blocked with patients, with meetings, with podcast schedules, with everything else. I take usually about 10 minutes to eat my lunch. Okay. So like, and most therapists run on a schedule like that because it's appointment-based schedules. And so, yeah. um, so just, you know, that's why I'm, I just want to put that out there. Like, look at the website, read the bio. If that answers your question, they have the training you're looking for, then great. If there's more specificity, ask the front desk. If the front desk doesn't know, they might be able to go get that answer and call you back. Um, 
So, um, and that's okay. Like I can give that answer real quick to my front desk, have them communicate that back. And normally that covers it. Um, but every now and again, you get the, you get somebody that really wants to tell you their life story. And I understand that sometimes we just need an ear to listen, <laughs> but I'm not recommending that that's um, going to give you the answer that you're that you're looking for, which is just understanding what is what are their credentials and are they experienced enough to treat what you're looking for? So well, thank you so much, Dr. Jess, for just providing so much good information um, on a really important topic out there and I think uh, sometimes gets missed um, because someone might just go to a regular, regular therapist and there's nothing wrong with regular therapists. I am one. Um, mm -hmm. But when you have a very specialized problem, you want to go to someone that is specialized in that and has experience in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's not a common uh, subspecialty. So no, yeah. I have people that come from all over and they're like, why aren't you in this area or that area? I'm like, because then the people in this area wouldn't like that, you know, like, it's, right. Right. Cause um, I live here. <laughs> it, it is not real common. So you might have to drive. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the real answer, but it's worth it to drive, to get the right treatment because the wrong treatment can make it worse. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So. Well, right, stay tuned. Yep. We've got more coming up this month. We've got some really fun interviews that are going to be scheduled. And um, I'm, I'm super pumped to hear uh, some of these other interviews all about breast cancer and, you know, what we can do to just raise awareness. All right. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to the episode today. If you would like to learn more about how Two Gals can support you, then join our Two Gals Insiders membership, which can be found at www.2-gals.com. Also, don't forget, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook as well as Instagram. Okay, everybody. Bye. Enjoy your week.